This is Another World is Possible, an audio podcast originating in Boston, Massachusetts. The following is an essay written by John Connor entitled Surveillance and Domestication. It was stolen from the Anarchist Library. Surveillance is sold to us on the grounds that, quote, the innocent have nothing to hide, unquote. But the reluctance of the watchers to also become the watched, the police will plead operational safety and security to excuse themselves from disclosing even the most trivial points of detail about themselves, such as canteen menus, etc., shows this as both a transparent excuse to extend surveillance way beyond the point where it should be socially acceptable, and a disguising of what is in the interests of the powerful with reference to what is supposedly, quote, in the interest of all. The Worm in Adam's Apple By way of excusing current levels of surveillance, where there is now one camera per four people in the UK alone, it is possible to present the first band societies where everyone knew everyone else's business as the most surveilled societies of all. This totally misses the point, however, as people then felt they were everyone else's business. Although individuals write to do their own thing, in negotiation with the band, regardless of traditional custom, was highly respected, there were not the firm boundaries of selfhood that characterized capitalism's atomized individualism, not least because personal and societal survival were so intimately interrelated. Part of your identity was your relationship to the rest of the band, and you would not be complete without this nor think of withholding something from them as you would from yourself. These were free, equal societies, where an unevenness of a knowledge, where it was hoarded to to advantage one over another, was an entirely alien, civilized concept, except possibly between genders, and then not always. In fact, Continuous sharing of news and skills were as much part of the fabric of daily life in hunter-gatherer societies as the sharing of tools and resources. With the rise of class society, where it became in the interests of the laboring majority to conceal resources and information about them, work rates, etc., from the non-laboring minority overseeing them, it equally became in the interests of the latter to try to find out what was being concealed from them. This, in truth, was the birth of the surveillance society. Its limited effectiveness still pretty much restricted to what could be seen directly by overseers and residual groupthink that led people to disclosure information, to disclose information that really wouldn't be in modern individualist society, that really wouldn't in modern individualistic societies. Alvarez's Centuries of Childhood is very good in pointing this up in the medieval era, when any idea of an internal dialogue was the privilege of a literate monastic minority. Others would say what they thought, their expression being limited to the presence of others with whom it could be shared, possibly getting back to the ears of feudal law enforcers and tax collectors. The most radical significance of the book in terms of shaping the human psyche was that it allowed private thoughts and expression in dialogue, for purely that the relationship is not mutual in the way conversation is, with the page. The first diaries 
Typically, records of spiritual exercises by cloistered divines are thus medieval. The self-enclosure facilitated by writing led by writing led of the ruling class necessity to the elaboration of more sophisticated techniques of surveillance. The spy networks engendered by Elizabeth I's courtier, Sir Francis Walsingham, for example, still celebrated as original in establishment spook circles today. They would solicit disloyal comment through infiltration techniques, pretending to be who they were not to suspects, as well as incidentally engaging pretty comprehensively in mail interception and attempting to crack countermeasures such as concealment and cipher. They were still largely dependent on the word, however, often words procured by duress, torture, and misrepresentation, forgery, or overreading of inter intercepted correspondence. Of course, this was the era of the witch hunts, with their spiritual or spectral evidence, the testimony of victims of witchcraft. But this dependence reached its apex in the reign of Charles II, and the baseless conspiracizing of the Protestant fanatic Titus Oates and his popish plot. Simply on the basis of tortured confession and guilt by association, an anti-Catholic program was whipped up, though its only true substance was Oates' own paranoid fantasy. The All-Seeing Eye This sort of thing may have been adequate as an instrument of terror befitting the majesty of absolute kings, but increased rationalism and individualism associated with the ascendance of Protestantism, with its claims of the believer's unmediated relationship with the divine, meant consequent increased demands for physical evidence as a break on the arbitrary power of courts, both kingly and judicial, especially in matters concerning the, quote, sanctity of private property. Paradoxically, as well as demanding more explicit legislation, legis legislative re regulation, the bourgeoisie's pet religion also demanded greater self-regulation, self, greater self-regulation, the self now being bounded by contract and financial relationships rather than intimate social relationships. Thus we have the commonplace appearance of the divine, all, quote, all-seeing eye, as seen miserably decorating Protestant homes and chapels to this day as well as topping the Masonic Pyramid, Washington and Jefferson incorporated into the design of every dollar bill. This idea of the, quote, the Lord sees all, meant that even in the individualist Protestant, that even the individualistic Protestant clung on to the vestige of community, of public being, in the sense of being in a community of two. He, she, and the ever-faithful God, even if real community, typically more reciprocal and more more reciprocal, less judgmental of sin and slackness, was sacrificed to such an unremitting moralistic code and consequence, as well as insisting that the worshiper be hardworking and thrifty. The Protestant faith self-imposed harsh standards of personal behavior when it came to the body and bodily interaction with others, as Norbert. Elias' classic study of the rise of, quote, good manners, 
the civil, civilizing process. Graphically documents, food became problematic, no longer to be indulged in gluttonously or passed from mouth to mouth, but rather like sexual or excretory functions, to be seen as a shameful concession to physicality, to be controlled and bounded by taboos. Best a private thing, the better to avoid such public shame. Such etiquette was literally domesticating, confined to the home, and homes, too, became more elaborate, with particular concessions to the body confined to particular rooms, a dining room for eating, a toilet for excretion, the corners of rooms having previously been preferred even at Louis XIV's Versailles, and the bedroom for sex behind curtained, canopied beds. The point of all this specialized architecture of privacy was that as few people saw it as possible, and so lose respect for someone shamefully indulging their body, as if we all don't. It was mainly something between a woman and the, quote, all-seeing lord. Seeing by Numbers a combination of capital accumulation secured by resultant fixed abstract laws and 18th century innovations in food production and transportation made the megacities that characterized the industrial revolution possible. This, then, was when surveillance came of age. On one level, faced with cities inhabited by millions, many born and raised undocumented or newly immigrated to the countryside and forming tight village-slash-ghetto communities closed to casual investigation by outsiders, it was possible to surveil them using the old techniques of gossip-gathering. On the other hand, this redoubled the need for self-surveillance as a curb on the spontaneous, riotous, street-mob behavior of previous centuries as the only practical guarantor of social order. On a general level, the inculation of a self-denying moral code into the poor was the responsibility of charismatic Methodism, as in the ruling class, the dilemma of the early 1800s, Wellesleyism or revolution, and later, do-gooders dispensing unwanted advice about thrift, temperance, and other supposedly good domestic practice. For those who wouldn't accept social inequality as a problem to be resolved by behavior adjustment on their part, there was the hero of bourgeois rational social calculation, Jeremy Bentham, and his panoptician, a prison house designed to do this architecturally. Its two key features were, one, individual cells, a rule of silence, and the hooding of inmates outside their cells to enforce complete isolation from their community and force them to fall back on the Protestant God and I community instead, and two, a central tower from which guards could e watch each cell unobserved, much like the Protestant God. Whether actually watched or not, the prisoner had to assume the worst for fear of harsher punishment also inculating a feeling of permanent surveillance, and thus self-regulation. Needless to say, in practice, this brutal, unnatural treatment amounted to sensory deprivation, and whilst it made some suggestible enough to be effectively brainwashed 
it broke others entirely, yielding horrifying hallucinations and self-harm. As recidivists could expect, many more years in such a treatment than first offenders, there was naturally an attempt to evade such treatment by increased anonymity and impersonation of identities amongst the urban poor. Of course, Michel Foucault dealt with this extensively in his Discipline and Punish, but it is often forgotten that the first concern of the new generation of surveillance was not to control crime, but rather to control disease, a much more widespread and deadly threat to the rich living in close geographic proximity to the poor. High walls, sturdy footmen in livery, and a mastiff would no way keep cholera from the door, their doors. So we find as early as the 1830s, the first epidemiologist descending into the unplumbed depths of darkest London to identify sources of disease and its carriers. This was rightly seen as social control being imposed on areas that typically rioted before admitting even one of Robert Peel's newly minted Blue Devils, the police. The proletariat typically re refused to acknowledge the reality of epidemic crowd diseases such as cholera, uniquely deadly in early megalops megalopolises, and once a key check on their development. And to destroy cholera charts and to destroy cholera carts intruding into their space as a conspiracy to confine the poor to houses of death, as they reckon hospitals, not without justification, for the sadistic amusement of surgeons during and after life. And of course, the poor only had to look to the panoptician to see what with what degree of humanity they would be treated by the new impersonal total institutions we seem so disturbingly accepting of today. A combination of bureaucracy, not sophisticated enough for individual documentation of entire populations before that developed out of regimented military practice during the American Civil War, and widespread literacy and resistance by its intended target population meant that the issuing of identification documents to the poor for voluntary presentation was not practical. In fact, it was so impractical that the threat of epidemic disease wasn't resolved by way of identifying and confining individual carriers, typically bourgeois moralistic blaming the victim, but rather by anonymous sanitation measures such as the building of London sewers in reaction to the, quote, great stink of the 1850s. Even though the idea of the state assuming responsibility for such massive tax-eating public works would have been pre would have previously been <clears throat> anathema to bourgeois sensibilities, this the breakthrough came in Paris, as late as 1870, when a surette clerk, Alphonse Bertillon, developed biometrics from a 14th-century Chinese model. Bertillonage considered of individually identifying anonymous individuals by a 20-minute examination when many key features of their body, their height, the length of their limbs, the spacing of their facial features, were systematically measured and then recorded to card indexes. Potential recidivists were typically uncooperative during these examinations. Later, in 1903, augmented by mugshots, 
so-called by the subject, mugging, pulling faces at the camera in an often amusingly successful effort to make themselves less identifiable in the future. It should be noted that Bertillon was heavily influenced by the imperial anthropology of its day, with its emphasis on the physical classification of types. Like the absurd Italian criminologist Lombroso, he attributed mental and moral characteristics to these physical signs, typically in a classist and racist manner than only, that only served to reinforce such ideologies in future. Bertillonage finally failed and fell out of police use, not because it was racist or unwieldy, or even because it was felt to be an excessive intrusion or on individuals' privacy. Sir, my statistics are my own. But rather because it couldn't do its job. In 1903, a man called Will West was confined to Leavenworth Jail for the murder on the basis of biometric measurements actually appropriate to another man, coincidentally also called William West, despite a supposed 243 to 1 chance against this happening. A 243 million to 1 chance against this happening, not, not counting any slips for the police tape measure. Besides, by then, they had something quicker to collect and easier to file, which didn't require the perp's physical presence to identify him. It is probably no surprise that finger fingerprinting arose from a colonial context, that other great submerged mass that caused the Victorian elite such worry. A chief magistrate in Jigupu, Sir William Herschel, first noticed in 1856 that Indians, either illiterate or otherwise unfamiliar with English script, signed themselves with a thumbprint instead of writing, an administrative procedure for unique identification he adopted himself. From there, it was a short step to Darwin's pal Sir Francis Galton writing this up in the scientific journal Nature, and a former supremo of Bombay's colonial police, Richard Henry introducing fingerprinting to Scotland Yard's reporter of crime detection procedures in 1896. Learning to Love Big Brother Although the state had a technique for distinguishing one anonymous individual from another with unerring accuracy, this was fairly useless if that individual could disappear into the anonymous urban mass. As former resistance fighter Jacques Hulu noted in his Technological Society, an immediate consequence of seeking to surveil particular individuals is that the whole society in which they might conceal themselves has to be surveilled also. The, quote, innocent majority as intensively as the, quote, guilty few. Perhaps more surprisingly, by the time fingerprinting was initiated, the resolute resistance to classification of the early 19th century was crumbling. There were a number of factors accounting for this, but key was the in inducements offered a major the majority not to remain anonymous. Mass education on a monitor system, much like that adopted by Napoleon's Grand Army, the basis of Bentham's Panoptician not only provided a more literate, techni technically sophisticated workshop with a greater chance of individual socioeconomic betterment, 
It also meant the young came to accept such treatment as normal, both classification by name and number, and harsh restrictions on personal behavior in class, no talking, no fidgeting, and could be systematically documented generation by generation. This was augmented by the centralization of registers of births, deaths, and marriages in places like Somerset House, instead of scattered throughout through disparate par parishes, the taking of consensuses to facilitate national planning, and the creation of employment-based taxation, which meant both bosses and workers, unless inclined to fraud, had to declare their identities along with their earnings, if they were to make a living at all. Even systematic mapping, such as carried out initially for military reasons by the Ordnance Survey, meant that space in which people could exist anonymously evaporated everyone in their place. This process was only accelerated by the liberal welfare reforms of the early 1910s and the post-World War II creation of the welfare state, both of which had had disclosure of identity as prerequisite requirements of receiving their services. It was a citizen's right and duty to enter into all this without realizing that by surrendering their anonymity to the state, they were also surrounding a key check on its otherwise unlimited power. I could rehearse at great length the elaboration of technological means that now exist to strip us of any possibility of anonymity, but this is done elsewhere, this issue, and besides, there is always Privacy International to consult. I will note that when a text like The Technology of Political Control was written in the supposedly paranoid 1970s, the suggestion that a comprehensive database could be linked with face recognition programs and cameras blanketing every public space in the country was regarded as pure science fiction, something out of George Orwell's dystopia in 1984. But today, this is, of course, a reality, and augmented by overgrown police and internal security agencies, parallel services like social workers and market researchers that want to know everything from the value of your home through to your children's eating and TV watching habits the better to protect and manipulate you. Easily surveilled e-communications, echelon, and card transactions, quote, predictive databases and profiling, and any other amount of tec technical intelligence. No, the point of this section is to explore why people have come to accept that quarter of a century ago would have been thought totalitarian, like Russia and nightmarish. We've already had the homo economicus version above that people gained in terms of access to education, employment, and healthcare by bringing themselves to the attention of the state and lost in terms of prosecution if they failed to do so. However, I think there is more to it than this. A phenomenon like mass observation in the interwar years was popularly and eagerly supported in its detailed documentation of everyday life. And what do you make of the dating rituals in Chile, where, after years of state-orchestrated surveillance to the nastiest of ends, courting couples now trail each other around with video cameras, quote, romantically building files on each other. 
The point is that with all the mass institutions that came out of Bentham's panoptician, the traditional role of the community in providing education, employment, and neighborly care has been replaced by these. Community <clears throat> has been replaced by institutionalized specialization, and so people feel it only natural that such specialists look out for them now there is no meaningful community to. They have been given no reason to get to know other people and so have no reason to trust them. Far from it, as society atomized, anyone can be criminal under the rubric of surveillance and lacking any social feeling except fear of punishment under the eye of the camera only encourages selfish behavior. Of course, the cameras are sold on the grounds not that we are the criminals, but that they are there to protect us from everyone else who potentially is. The old Wellesleyans were right that gave someone a penny in their pocket and the slightest whiff of a chance of advancement, and they'll see everyone else around them as a threat to that, either as potential thieves or as temptations to be repudiated with the zeal of the tempted. Quote, terrorists are currently flavor of the month threat. Before that, it was pedophiles, meaning kids had to be microchipped and cameras installed in every family home while a generation of kids turned into scared, whiny couch potatoes alongside their parents. Not many years ago, it was witches, for fuck's sakes. Absurd social workers seeing cracking the local coven of, quote, satanic abusers as their next step up the career ladder. If this doesn't convince you what nonsense it all is, it's agreed that now surveillance <clears throat> is so ubiquitous it can't displace crime anywhere else. Itself, surely, an exercise in imposed policing. It's not actually reducing crime rates. Offenses of violence people fear most, <clears throat> irrationally as they're still rare, are committed spontaneously by people too drunk or angry to be deterred by a camera, or too cunning to get filmed by one. Why do people still welcome surveillance despite this? Well, the reliance on experts and definition of ourselves that comes through identification with their institutions and their representations of us, qualifications, income, birth, and marriage certificates, conformity to consumer trends, and all the rest of that insane kit and caboodle, continually serves to emphasize our insignificance an eight-digit number in their overwhelming mega-machine. It is this that leads people to love Big Brother, essentially a show where we pass tabloid-like judgment on intensively surveilled wannabe non-entities undergoing months of sexual frustration in the hope of getting to be children's TV presenters at the end. Endemol's even more sinister, shattered, where people were subjected to voluntary sleep deprivation in the manner of victims of Stalin's Cheka, and even lower on the totem pole, searching for themselves in crowd shots, be it big sporting events, pseudo-archaic spectacles typically orchestrated by the royals, or feudal, quote, crawl-around-London marches, or five-second slots on clip shows using RL footage the police or whoever have cobbed together as an extra earner. <clears throat> One in the electric eye. How do we put an end to the reign of surveillance? 
Assuming you don't want to lead over-controlled lives like shadows until you die of boredom and insignificance, that is. Well, firstly, don't take advice from me and start thinking for yourself. But a few suggestions include... First, realizing there is no quid pro, pro, quid pro quo between you and those surveilling you. That they are not accountable to you. That they have no right to do to you what they would not tolerate done to themselves. And potentially those voyeuristic parasites have the power to make quite a mess of your life from as little motivation as boredom-induced whim. They are the enemies of a free society, not its guarantors. A further concentration of state power that prevents any injustice being righted. Unplugging yourself from all the bullshit images surrounding you, the clowns in the Big Brother house, the endlessly banal biogs of the lives of the rich and famous, the five-day fashions, all that irrelevant crap, and learning to laugh at them and, with consequent increased self-confidence, yourself and your past folly. Unplugging others through irreverent satire and sheer indifference to the manufactured dreams they undoubtedly hold so dear. You'll probably start with the people you know best. Typically a tiny number now people have careers, not friends. But best try to broaden it out a bit more than that. As a key factor for sustaining a surveillance society is intolerance and fear of anyone at all different. The new slash old you will have better things to do and talk about, maybe even the recreation of authentic, trusting human connections without constant manufactured electronic babble and distraction of baseless paranoia. Disconnection and direct action of a more hands-on kind, a refusal to fill in tax returns and other official or quasi-official requests for information, the census, market research, card applications, or responding to them in absurd, misleading ways to gradually fill our databases with even more useless shit. Believe me, when up against it, you'll find it's really possible to live without that credit card and all the form-filling bureaucratic bullshit, especially with a few mates on board with you too. Reformists, please note, denying paperwork and opportunities to surveil the public cuts the lifeblood of the dozens of agencies that exist principally for that purpose so they can start being laid off as irrelevant too. And the campaign against speed cameras is way to go for all intrusive surveillance and related records. The creation of genuine unmonitored space, at risk of sounding bogus, liberated zones, and the return of the lawless, deprogrammed 18th century king mob. In conclusion, I'd like to say that I'm not arguing for, quote, privacy, a thoroughly bourgeois concept based on self-disgust and shame. No, let yourself go and do what comes naturally. Fuck in the streets, I say. I'm arguing for the revolutionary recreation of original, genuine community, where there are no secrets, no shame, and no surveillance of the powerful as a tool to rule over the powerless. That was Surveillance and Domestication, written by John Connor, stolen from the Anarchist Library. This was Another World is Possible audio podcast.